Thank you, Father, for my son. <clears throat> and thank you for your goodness to us. You are a great God. Incredible. We know that you have a plan. And we want to discover it. We want to get in on it. We don't want to miss out on our destiny. So please teach us from your word this morning. We invite you in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 6 through 14. Page 654 in the Bibles that we give away. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. Someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. We're going through the book of Hebrews verse by verse. And today we're at what I'm entitling, Jesus Fulfills Our Destiny. Now, before we dig into the passage, I do have a video clip that might at first seem a little strange, so just watch it and we'll see how it fits, all right? Anybody's name. Anna, 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 Bobana, Banana, Fana, Fofana, Fifi, Momana, Anna. Let's try Brad, 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 Banana, Fana. Walter, Fielding! Fifi, Momalter, Walter. Shout. <laughs> okay, Fielding. I can hear you in there laughing at me. Mr. Zit, you duck fart. I'm leaving and I'm never coming back. You hear me, Fielding? <laughs> yes, I hear you. I'm tearing up your permit. There. Nobody laughs at Montgomery Shrap. Okay, uh, he was stuck, by the way, right? Have you ever felt stuck in life? I think in Jeremiah 38, verse 6, where they threw Jeremiah into a cistern, it was a empty but just mud, and he just sank into the mud. And if it weren't for his friend you know, rescuing him with the rope, he was, he was stuck. Let me say this. We are stuck outside of our destiny because of our sin. We are meaningless, longing for meaning. We have an ultimate purpose, but it is unobtainable apart from Christ. People strive to find their purpose because we know deep down there is a reason for our existence. We need to fulfill our destiny, but we can't until we discover what it really is and we surrender to the one who can make it possible. God made us for a reason. Until we discover his reason, we flounder aimlessly outside of our destiny. God has shown us 
the way. It's Jesus. Jesus fulfills our destiny. The old covenant prepares the way for us to fulfill our destiny, but it is insufficient to accomplish what is necessary. The old covenant points us to Jesus who fulfills our destiny. And that's what we see in our passage, chapter 9, verses 6 through 14. Let's read it. With these things prepared like this, the priests enter the first room repeatedly, performing their ministry. But the high priest alone enters the second room, and he does that only once a year and never without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins that the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. This is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. They are physical regulations and only deal with food, drink, and various washings imposed until the time of the new order. But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God. Now notice the preliminary nature of the old covenant and the permanent effectiveness of the new covenant which makes it possible for us to fulfill our destiny. Now this is the second part. If you remember from last week, we looked at verses 1 through 5 that spoke of the individual items within the tabernacle. Now we're seeing the priests offering and we begin by seeing this preliminary nature of the Old Covenant ministry. But I wanted to show you a couple pictures so that you can kind of visualize what this tabernacle looked like. Now, this is just a representation to help us see the flow of the tabernacle. Most of the people are outside looking in, but the priests were allowed, and they could go to the altar of sacrifice. That's where they would do the burnt offerings, the labor where they would wash uh, the, the animals and so forth. But the priest, and what our passage is bringing out, has how the priest would go into that first part of the building daily doing their stuff, but only the high priest and only once a year with blood was allowed into the very holy of holies or the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was. And that's what represented the very presence of God. Here's another picture of it. You can see this the holy place and the most holy place where you have the, the articles of the, the lampstand and table of showbread and the incense altar, but then the curtain and then in the holiest, the most holy place, you have the Ark of the Covenant. And that represented the very presence 
of God, okay? But in our passage, we're seeing how the old covenant was simply preliminary. It pointed to something greater to come, okay? Uh, Let me read from George Guthrie's commentary on this. He says, the picture of God we get from the tabernacle commands described in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 10, may strike us as rather flat. He is the commanding God of ritualistic detail. But a more accurate reading of the forms and formalities of priestly worship shows us the love of a creator whose children have run into the night and cannot find their way home on their own. The tabernacle worship centers around and calls us to movement towards God, a movement in which we celebrate his presence, living in awe of his majestic holiness. Since God placed the tabernacle at the center of Israel's existence, his presence in the midst of his people would seem to be at the center of God's plan. So though they didn't weren't able to enter into the very holy of holies. The people were able to come near, and that was the point of the tabernacle. It was at the center of the Israelites' camp, showing that, the, that his presence and being with him was the center of their existence. But it was still preliminary because they weren't able to enter into the very presence of God. That was waiting Okay, so we see in verses 6 through, oh, that went fast. Verses 6 through 8, there were serious restrictions to the presence of God. Look at it again. He says, with these things prepared like this, the priests entered the first room repeatedly performing their ministry. But the high priest alone enters the second room, and he does that only only once a year and never without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. And so we see there was these serious restrictions to the presence of God. And then he makes this statement that he'd offer, the high priest would go in, offer that sacrifice with blood for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. What does that even mean? Sins committed in ignorance. I mean, when you sin, it's like, whoops, I accidentally stole that thing. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know it was wrong to murder that guy. I mean, I mean, what is this even talking about, okay? Well, let's go back to the Old Testament and see if we can gain a little more understanding. Look at Numbers chapter 15, verses 27 through 31. Here we see this idea brought out, Numbers 15. And in verse 27, he starts out, he says, if one person sins unintentionally. Okay, so it's clear that the author of Hebrews, when he says sins committed in ignorance, he's referring to these sins committed unintentionally. So this is the same thing that he's pointing back to. So if one person sins unintentionally, he is to present a year-old female goat as a sin offering. The priest will then make atonement before the Lord on behalf of the person who acts in error, sinning unintentionally. And when he makes atonement for him, he will be forgiven. 
You are to have the same law for the person who acts in error, whether he is an Israelite or an alien who resides among you. Then he goes on. Look at verse 30. But the person who acts defiantly, literally sins with a high hand, so acts defiantly, defiantly, whether native or resident alien, blasphemes the Lord. That person is to be cut off from his people. He will certainly be cut off because he has despised the Lord's word and broken his command. His guilt remains on him. Okay, so there's that idea of guilt. Now, so we have these two different kinds of sins found here. The unintentional sins the sacrifices work for, the defiant sins the sacrifices don't work for. So we're like, what does it mean to be an unintentional sin? I'm pretty sure most of my sins are defiant, right? This is mentioned before, so let's look at Leviticus chapter 4, verse 27. It's just the next book to the left, okay? Leviticus 4, 27. And here he states, Now if any of the common people sins unintentionally by violating one of the Lord's commands, does what is prohibited, and incurs guilt... Then he goes on and he offers a sacrifice, and you can read that if you want to, okay? But notice here, incurs guilt from this sin, this unintentional sin. Now keep that in mind and look at chapter 5. Now, in chapter 5, after he lists several sins that are very obviously sins committed defiantly, not, whoops, I didn't know that was wrong kind of sins, but bad sins, okay? Verse 5, he says this, if someone incurs guilt, same idea back here in verse 27 of chapter 4, he is to confess he has committed that sin. He must bring his penalty for guilt for the sin he's committed to the Lord, a female lamb or goat, etc. Okay, so now here's what, here's what the Apologetic Study Bible, I think, correctly puts all this together. This is what it says. Indeed, there are only four passages where confession is required. And each instance deals with deliberate sins. Chapter 5, verse 1 through 4, 16, 21, 26, 40, Numbers 5, 6, and 7. Now here it is. Through confession, deliberate sins are converted into inadvertent sins or sins committed unintentionally, thereby qualifying them for sacrificial expiation. So, The real matter was the matter of the heart. When you sin, when God convicts you of the sin, if in humility you come to him and you confess your sin and repent, then the sacrifices worked for the forgiveness of your sin. But if you just went through the motions and you defiantly held on to your sin, they didn't work. It's a matter of the heart. But the new covenant goes directly to the heart, okay? So, anyway, I hope that helps. Uh, but here we have, verses 6 to 8, these serious restrictions to the presence of God. F.F. Bruce makes this point. And he says what he means is that unimpeded access to the presence of God was not granted 
until Christ came to accomplish his sacrificial ministry. So they were allowed to come near. God wanted them to experience his presence. He showed that that was the central point of their existence, but they were still kept away, a distance, so to speak, The unimpeded access to the very presence of God had not been made available yet until Jesus Christ. But he then died on the cross, rose again from the dead, the veil is torn, and we now can enter into the very presence of God and fulfill our destiny. Okay? That is what he's pointing towards here. So we see the serious restrictions. We also see in verse 9, the old covenant ministry didn't perfect the conscience. Look what it says. This is a symbol for the present time. And he's referring to the whole tabernacle here as a symbol pointing to Christ. We looked at that last week. This is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. They were only outward. They never perfected the conscience, which is why they had to be continually offered over and over again as well. So what is our conscience? One definition says it is the moral awareness of good and evil. That God has given each of us a conscience, and we all have this sense of right and wrong, a moral awareness of good and evil, and all of us break what we know is right and wrong. We break this, and therefore our consciences are unclean. They're hurt, and they're not perfected by the old covenant. But we'll see when we get to the new covenant how that is taken care of. Okay, so hold that thought. And then finally in verse 10, the old covenant ministry was external and temporary. It says they are physical regulations and only deal with food, drink, and various washings imposed. Now look at that word. I have it underlined until the time of the new order. And so the old covenant ministry was external and temporary. The old covenant ministry was preliminary, but it pointed us to our ultimate destiny, which is Jesus. So, That brings us to the second part of our passage. Verses 11 through 14, we see the permanent effectiveness of the new covenant ministry, okay? So now we see Jesus Christ. And we see, first of all, in verses 11 and 12, that Jesus made the ultimate offering to obtain our eternal redemption. Look what it says. But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Jesus made the ultimate offering to obtain our eternal redemption. It's eternal. It lasts forever. Lutrosis is the Greek word for redemption. It means, one one theological dictionary says, experience of being liberated from an oppressed situation. Unstuck from being stuck. 
It means to be redeemed, to be ransomed, to be bought by a price and brought out of the slavery that held us bound and to be eternally free. So what was, what, what were we slaves to before we were saved from this by Jesus? We were slaves to sin. Sin is the barrier to our destiny. Look at Isaiah 59, verse 2. We see this ominous passage, but very important for us to understand. Isaiah 59, verse 2. It says, but your iniquities are separating you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not listen. Our sins are what keep us from fulfilling our destiny, from drawing near to God and being with him and hearing his calling upon our lives. But Jesus' death on the cross, his shedding of blood, brings about a complete forgiveness. It also brings about power to overcome sin and its hold on us. And even the promise that someday we will be totally absent from sin and evil when Jesus comes back. That's what the blood of Jesus Christ brings. So Jesus made the ultimate offering to obtain our eternal redemption. He offered his blood at the perfect tabernacle. Did you see that? But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands that is not of this creation. We saw this before in passages previously to this where there is a a tabernacle in heaven that the tabernacle on earth was just a picture, a shadow of, and that's why it had to be made correctly because it pointed to this ultimate place where Jesus, when he ascended up to heaven, took his blood, offered it in the, in the real tabernacle and brought about the forgiveness for our sins. So he offered his blood at the perfect tabernacle and he offered his blood once for all. The priests had to do it over and over and over because of their sin and, and it never really brought about the forgiveness of sin. But Jesus, his offering was perfect. Once for all. Um, The blood of bulls and goats, uh, it does show that God does allow substitution. You see, you can either pay for your sins yourself, which is hell, or because God allows substitution under the old covenant, the animals which pointed us to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that he would be our substitute. So they were there, but the bulls and goats, they could never really bring about this eternal redemption because, first of all, they weren't eternally perfect, infinitely worthy, right? But Jesus is of infinite worth because he's both God and man. And also, the bulls and goats, they didn't volunteer. You know, oh, hey, I'll go, I'll go. No, they didn't volunteer. But Jesus, who did not have to die on the cross for us, volunteered, and he 
allowed his own creation to crucify him. But he offered his blood once for all. Listen, a re-sacrifice of Jesus is blasphemy. He died once for all. There are actually some who teach that the Lord's Supper is a re-sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That is blasphemy because he died once for all. And if that is true, then we are not on probation. We have eternal redemption. I've asked Elizabeth to share her a portion of her testimony that really brings this out and uh, uh, this idea of, let me see if I got this right. I can never turn these things on. Am I pressing the right button? There we are. Um, so yeah, early on in my life, I received Christ and but later, I became very legalistic, and it became about rules and regulations and instead of the relationship, and it was about how good I was, and I wasn't. <laughs> and so I, I told Lord, I said, Lord, I can't follow your rules, and I can't live up to your expectations, and I walked away from him. And those were the worst days of my life. Um, and uh, I got in a very bad car accident. I saw my life flash before me. And I felt like God told me, stop what you're doing or I am bringing you home. And I was like, wow. He didn't leave me. I left him. I walked away from him. And he didn't leave me. He still had a hold of me. That meant that no matter what I did, he would he would take my life before I walked so far away from him, and he would bring me home. Do you know that means I could never walk away from him? He had me, and it made me worship him all the more. I could not get enough of him. I ran to every church and every place I could go. I spent time with him and just wanted to be with him and his people. And so, I mean, it's incredible. Once we are his... We are always his, and he will never, ever let us go. Amen. In other words, we're not on probation. It's an eternal redemption that has taken place. And when you repent of your sins, if you've truly repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are saved. You are his. Once for all this eternal redemption that he has bought for you. And when we look at this passage, we move on, we see that the triune God himself accomplished our salvation. He goes on in verses 13 and 14, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkling those who are defiled sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God Cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God. Notice the, the triune God is involved in this. We have in verse 14, Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, a reference to God the Father. And so we see the triune God involved in our salvation. Now, 
He also, prior to that in verse 13, talks about the Old Testament again, the the blood of goats and bulls and sprinkling and defilement and sanctification. And what is all that talking about? You see, we need forgiveness for our sins. But we also need cleansing from the defilement of sin. When we sin, we sin against God and we break his commands and so punishment must be made and therefore the substitution because we couldn't accept we couldn't receive the punishment but it also when we sin against God we're defiled by sin and there's this sense deep down in us that our our consciences are defiled our whole person and we feel dirty and we feel this because we need to be cleansed but Jesus blood cleanses us And when Satan comes along, if you have truly trusted in Christ, Satan's going to come along and he's going to say, ah, you're still defiled. You're still dirty. You simply can say, no, I am completely washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Absolutely cleansed. And receive that understanding. Whatever you've done, wherever you've been, if you trust in Christ, you are cleansed of all your sin. In Albert Moeller's commentary on this, he makes this point. He says, to approach God under the old covenant required becoming ritually clean. This was even necessary for the high priest before he could enter the most holy place to perform the day of atonement sacrifices. Becoming ritually clean is what the author means by purification of the flesh. The old covenant priests engaged in these ceremonies so that they might be rendered externally, outwardly clean, and thus go into the holy place and sacrifice for the people, even if it was just for the briefest of moments. But these ceremonies and sacrifices could not cleanse the inner person or the conscience. But Jesus' blood cleanses even our conscience and puts us in a place where we can enter into the very holy of holies, his presence, and experience his purpose for our lives. It says, cleanse us, um, that the blood of Jesus cleanses our consciences from dead works. Works that cannot give eternal life going through the motions, going through all these things, or even seeking to, if I just become a better person, I just try to do better or whatever, those works, they can never give us eternal life. But Jesus cleanses us, our conscience, from the dead works. And we embrace Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. So we see here, Jesus made the ultimate offering to obtain our eternal redemption. The triune God accomplishes our salvation, and our destiny is to serve the living God. You see how it ended? Now watch this, okay? In verse 14, the triune God accomplishes this, cleanses our consciences from dead works, so that, why did he do this? So that we can serve the living God. There is your destiny. There is God's plan for your life to serve the living God. 
Our destiny is to serve the living God. Jesus' death brings about the forgiveness of our sins and the cleansing necessary because sin keeps us from the presence of God. When we appropriate the blood of Christ through repentance and faith, we can enter into his presence and fulfill our purpose. We enter his presence, we express our love to him, we receive his love and we receive his calling upon our lives. To serve God, the Greek word here is latruo. There are two major Greek words for worship in the New Testament, proskuneo and latruo. Now, proskuneo, and we learned about this actually last night in our, uh, in our seminar on worship that Aaron led, uh, which was wonderful. But proskuneo is used, it's the kind of worship we typically think of when we think of worship, when we gather together and sing songs to the Lord and bow before him and those kinds of things. That's proskuneo worship. But latruo, um, that is the kind of service worship that we're seeing described here by the priests. They were serving God in a worshipful attitude, but it's worship service. So sometimes the word is translated service, and sometimes it's translated worship, which is interesting, okay? Both the the verb and the noun, the noun being latreia, uh, we see in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Okay, why don't you look at that? Romans 12, 1, we see this same word being used, and it culminates all of what Paul taught in Romans 1 through 11, all the things he said about salvation in 1 through 11. Chapter 12, verse 1, he says, therefore, in light of that, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Worship, that's latreia, the noun form of this, of this word, okay? This is your true worship or your true act of service. Some translations translate it that way because it's worshipful service. But notice he's calling us to offer our whole selves in worshipful service to God 24-7. That is God's plan for us. So our whole lives... 24-7, worshiping God in an intimate relationship of love, surrendered to him as Lord at, as the center and destiny of our life. Now, our bulletins, did you notice we got new bulletins? Okay, they're kind of nice, aren't they? I like them, they look good. Well, anyway, there's something in that bulletin, and it says this, this statement. We want to help people follow Jesus and share him with others. Okay. That's kind of the 10,000 foot, this is the purpose of all of God's people, to follow Jesus and share him with others, okay? So while we, we have this overarching calling, but we also, each of us, have a specific calling for advancing the kingdom of God together. What is your part? You see, God has called you to live this out Offering your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, this 24-7 worship, this serving the living God in your families, in your uh, place of work, wherever that may be, community, but also in the local church. 
God has a plan, and he's gifted us to be able to do different things. So we're all supposed to be doing different things within the body of Christ, fulfilling our plan. That's what, actually what we're going to be talking about this Saturday on the gifts of the Spirit. So God has a plan, but what is your part? Now imagine being stuck in a false destiny. God has a plan. He wants to reveal it to you. What is it? What's your part? And so as we do this together, we can see great things take place. I saw this uh, article in the uh, news uh, this morning, an article about the church, which I thought was interesting. You know, you don't usually see that very often in the news. <laughs> and, uh, and it was actually just an article about a guy who says... Uh, um, he was a pastor encouraging people to quit church. And he really wasn't encouraging them to quit being a part of the church. What is, he, you know, he's just making a statement to be funny. But, uh, but he says this. He says regularly, oh, let me see here. Let me skip down. In most churches, 80% of the work is being carried out by 20% or less of the people. Now, that is not true at this church. That's why I love this church. You know, we're, we're a good 60% doing the work or more. Who knows? I don't love to figure that out. But he says, we've become a church of spectators, and the pastoral staff is getting burnt out. He says, only 39% of active believers consider the Bible as the literal word of God. Wow. Not our church. Okay, anyway, but less than 20% of professing believers follow the biblical principle of giving. Only 5% have shared their faith with a non-believer. More than half of all church members attend church once a month or less. Something has to change. The casual Christianity is what he's talking about there. But imagine if every single person here, because God has a calling on your life, And if every one of us found out what that calling was and got in on it, and each of the callings are just as important as the other, okay? And if we all find our place, wow, what the the sky is the limit, right? Imagine that. This this is, I'll tell you what, oh well. Okay. Let me finish with David Allen's commentary. He just sums this whole thing up, this whole passage. He says, in summary, Hebrews 9, 1 through 14 makes clear. The way, that the way to God was not open to people under the old covenant, verses 1 through 11. But now Jesus, the eternal high priest, has made atonement, cleansing the inner conscience of believers and fitted them to serve God as spiritual priests themselves to fulfill our destiny. Let's pray. Father, I am pretty sure, because I don't know everybody here and where they're at with you, I'm pretty sure there's probably some who are on the outside looking in and have never truly repented of their sins and placed their faith in Christ. And they're floundering, but you have a purpose for them, and I ask that you draw them in. Help them to put their trust in Christ and him alone for their salvation. And I'm also pretty sure that there are others who are just wondering, what's my part? 
I'm tired of just thinking about my own pleasure and fun and whatever. I, I want to discover this plan that you have. And I ask that you would begin to show them. Help them to discover their spiritual gifts and show them how that would fit into their church, into your plan, and with their families, and with their, their jobs, and so forth. And help us all to be united in advancing the kingdom of God as we all serve the living God. In Jesus' name.